0: And Today we're going to um, build some suspense for the David series by, um, before we jump right in to David's life, we're going to um, look at a character in the backstory of um, David being anointed as king, and that is Hannah, the mother of Samuel. We're going to take a look at her story today. So he, listen now to Hannah's story in 1 Samuel 1. 4 to 20 Whenever whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she had wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the god of israel grant you what you have asked of him she said may your servant find favor in your eyes then she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the lord and then went back to the, their home in ramah elkanah made love to his wife hannah and the lord remembered her so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I, have, I asked the Lord for him. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Lord, may the word of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So our story today is a simple and moving one and very raw and real, right? Um, A woman comes to God in her desperation and is heard and her prayer is answered. At first, the story might seem somewhat remote because it takes place in a world very distant from our own. This was a transitional time in Israel's history. This was uh, after the rule of the judges, but just before the time of the kings of Israel. And this was a world in which a man of stature might have more than one wife. And it was a time in which the sacrifices were made in the semi-permanent sanctuary in Shiloh. So it was before the times of the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. So i pray that as we look more closely at this ancient story that we will find connection points and intersection points to our own lives in the first scene of this story we may begin to understand the desperation in hannah's situation one that her devout and loving husband elkanah doesn't seem to grasp he says to her as she sobs and is unable to eat at the sacrificial feast. Hannah, why are you so sad? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Well, why is Hannah sad? She's loved deeply by her husband, unlike her rival, Peninnah, whom Elkanah probably married just because Hannah was unable to bear children. But here is the tangle. The root of the deep family tensions that Hannah is caught in is partly due to the family structure itself. One man with two wives. How's that for a dysfunctional situation? (laughs) And tensions were heightened each year on their family trip to Shiloh. And as we think about moments in our own family vacations, um, maybe we can relate to the fact that sometimes family trips um, are times that heighten tensions between us. During the sacrificial feast, portions of the sacrifice were divided up and they were given according to the number of children that, that someone had. So this rubbed in the fact that Hannah didn't have children. So Elkanah, hoping to comfort his wife with his love, um, he didn't seem to realize that he was actually contributing to the situation, to this destructive family dynamic when he gave Hannah a double portion. Because Peninnah then responded to this challenge, to her own self-worth, by lashing out. And she taunted Hannah year after year because Hannah had no children of her own. And Hannah would have felt this deeply because she lived in a culture where a woman's worth was partly seen in her ability to have children. Hannah um, would have, oh, I just wanted to say that this is another place in the story where some of us, especially we women, may um, feel this deeply, um, especially if we have experienced infertility or had miscarriages. This really does go to us in a deep, as a, in a deep place as women. Um, it's a pain that we can tend to hide. And let me just say as a side note that this is something that I have experienced. And so if this is a sorrow that any of you have experienced and you need a safe confidential space to talk and process with someone about that, I'm happy to be a presence for you in that. Another way that we might relate to Hannah's situation is in the dynamics of our own families and extended families. Perhaps like Hannah, we're dealing with a disappointment, um, feelings of unworthiness, maybe there's competition, just other kinds of conflicts that happen in our families, right? Depending on our personality, we will respond to these dynamics differently. Some of us try to smooth things over as Elkanah did. Others of us might lash out like Peninnah did. And some of us might turn our troubles in on ourselves and become depressed and that's what Hannah did. I wonder though if in this story there's another layer of Hannah's unhappiness that we might um, dig into here. Maybe it's a layer of unhappiness that we might identify with ourselves in our own places of unhappiness. The scripture says that the Lord closed her womb. Might the core of Hannah's feelings of depression be rooted in the sense of God-forsakenness? Maybe each year, when they made their pilgrimage to the sanctuary and she prayed to God to have children. And every year that she found herself so barren, she felt the sense of God, do you not hear me? Do you not see me? Her prayer for what mattered most in her life remained unanswered. Elkanah's love was not enough. She longed to know that God saw and cared about her circumstances. This again is something that um, many of us can identify, right? With those situations in our lives that maybe we've given up hope on um, seeing change that we've prayed for for a long time. But in the second scene of our story, a shift occurs and it's a shift in what seems up to this point a hopeless situation, just this repeated dynamic, right, in the family. And the shift happens in something very simple or maybe not so simple. Hannah turns to the Lord. She pours out her soul, asking God to look upon her misery and she boldly bargains with God, saying that if she if God gives her a son, she will um, give him back to God as a Nazarite, and this was a special vow taken. We, um, Samuel, um, before that, in the, he was one of the judges that took a Nazarite vow. <clears throat> and Hannah continues weeping and praying so much from her heart that words don't even come out. Maybe you know, even though she'd prayed about this before, maybe this is really a bearing of her soul to God in a way that she had not done before, just in raw honesty. And it, and it's so extraordinary um, in how she's pouring this out that the priest thinks she's drunk. She really has um, unintentionally made a spectacle of herself. So what do we think about Hannah's coming before God? Do we wonder why she would turn to the very one who closed her womb? Are we embarrassed by her vulnerability in expressing her emotions so just in such a raw, open way? Or are we surprised by her attempt to bargain with God? One little woman in the town of Ramah seeking to persuade God to pay attention to her when there's so many other problems in the world, right? Maybe she should have been praying for her own country, Israel. Israel, um, in fact, at this time had been suffering from its own kind of barrenness. They were in a transitional time and they were lacking leadership. They were lacking a leadership that would give them some moral direction and the ability to face the political and economic stresses that were caused by the threat of the Philistines in this time. Or maybe we are moved by Hannah's courage and raw honesty before God about her troubles. Something so simple is not always so easy. We often find ourselves wanting to pray and yet not wanting to. Blocked perhaps by the fear that our prayer will not be answered. Or by anger because we've prayed about a situation and it hasn't changed. Or by our own judgment of ourselves, maybe we feel unworthy or that our motives have to be more pure before we come to God. In Richard Foster's book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, he begins, um, his first chapter, is on a prayer called Simple Prayer, in which we bring ourselves, I'm quoting now, bring ourselves before God just as we are, warts and all, like children before a loving parent, we open our hearts and make our requests. Foster goes on to warn us of the temptation to want to skip this time of prayer in our pursuit of more advanced forms of praying. Seeing ourselves as too sophisticated for this self-centered kind of prayer. But it is here, time and time again, where God can meet us where we really are. In the midst of our mess, our brokenness, our yearnings, and our unmet needs. So before we can leave this scene, we must notice one more thing. Once Hannah has explained herself to Eli, he blesses her saying, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. It's helpful sometimes when another person can come into our lives in that moment and speak God's blessing on us, be that presence of God that we can't physically experience. And then Hannah trusts these words. She lives into Eli's blessing, goes back to the family, has something to eat, and even joins them in worship the next morning. She has shifted because she has not only chosen to bear her soul before God, but then she has chosen to trust God. And as we may know from personal experience, trust is a risk. Sometimes it's easier to, to protect ourselves from disappointment by, rem, by remaining hopeless or cynical. But no matter the circumstances, God continues to invite us to trust him. So in the final scene, back at their home in Rama, we have a joyous celebration. One that we, where we learn that Hannah's situation has been changed for, forever. Her petition has indeed been answered by the lord she is no longer as she feels as she had felt god forsaken the lord remembered her she has conceived a son and named him samuel and samuel means he over whom the name of god has been said we learn later on in the chapter that hannah does indeed fulfill her vow Her vow once she has weaned samuel she brings him to the temple to eli and in this she finds deep joy despite the ache of leaving her son samuel with eli she visits samuel each year in the sanctuary bringing a little robe that she has made and eventually she is blessed with three more sons and two daughters So we may have experienced in our own lives that dedicating back to God what God has given to us causes our joy to grow. A deeper layer of our joy is met as we connect with God's purposes. And what is amazing is that in this very point at which God intervenes in the individual life of a simple yet persistent woman, touching her life in the place of her deepest yearning, God is bringing out a transformation for all Israel. Samuel will be their priest, judge, and prophet, a true man of God who will guide and direct Israel in this time of great need. And as we learned last week, not only will he anoint their first King Saul, but their most beloved King David a man after God's own heart. And the ripples extend even further. This story of Samuel's birth, which may remind us of the birth stories in the Gospel of Luke, anticipates the greatest gift of all in the birth of Jesus. A gift for all people. The gift of a God who not only sees us and intervenes in our lives, but a God who has come to be with us through the wonderful mystery of the incarnation. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, in whatever ways we may feel hopeless and God forsaken, may we come before God as Hannah did. One small woman caught in a painful situation who poured out her heart before God, trusted in God, and dedicated back to God, what God had given her. Perhaps you've been praying for something for a long time and given up on hope of change. I encourage you to bring this to God afresh, trusting not that all will work out as you want, but trusting in God, the one who not only sees you, but is with you and within you through Christ. And may we all find at the deepest level of our longing, our yearning for God's very self. And may it be so for you and for me. Amen. Amen.